Our scripture is from Luke 24, 36 to 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of royal fish, and he took it and ate it before them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning we are separated geographically, but we're brought, we're brought together spiritually. We're be- right now we are together before you as our Father. We come as a congregation of priests praying for Carol Garner and Billy Griggs. Father, we pray that you would give them strength, lift them up. We thank you for the testimony that they are to all of us. We pray for Tony Hunt. We thank you for his recovery. We thank you that he's home. We thank you for these treatments. We pray that they will be effective in destroying this infection. We pray for Claire Reddit and Ray Lynch. We ask that, Father, you would improve their vision, improve their eyesight. Bless Peggy Bauer. Bring relief from this awful pain. We pray that this surgery will be scheduled soon. Father, bless Rachel Creekmore. The delivery of her child is approaching, and we pray that the child will be born healthy and well and that Rachel will be healthy and well. We thank you this morning for the life of Marie Austin, for the years that you gave her to us. We pray that you would bless her family. Father, now as we open your word together to this incredible, beautiful event, we pray that you would teach us, give us eyes to see, the risen Jesus. Give us ears to hear him. Father, give us a mind that understands and believes and hearts that yearn for him. John Sartell cannot preach that way, but we've heard you, Father. and We pray that we would hear your word in the power of your spirit this morning for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Where were you when? I was once asked by someone where he was when President Kennedy was killed. He told me, and then he said, John, I remember with more clarity where I was when I heard that Buddy Holly had died. For him, the day Buddy Holly died was indeed the day the music died. For some point in our lives that would never be otherwise remembered, is forever remembered because some history-making event 
come slamming into our lives at that moment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Mount Everest of all of history. Yet, does any one of us remember exactly where they were the first time they came to believe in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now, many of us who are older will remember where we were when President Kennedy was killed. I was walking into 515 Corner Street with my friend John Allen Howard. Others will remember where they were when the planes hit the Twin Towers. And some few will even remember where they were when Buddy Holly died. But who remembers where they were when they were first seized by the reality of the resurrection? Well, then maybe we don't believe it. But I think it's more likely that we accept it as a well-known gospel truth, but we've lost the hugeness, the grandeur of it. And so that's where we begin this morning as we watch these disciples react to the resurrection. First, I want us to see a world-altering event. Look at verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Look at verse 41. And while they still disbelieved, for joy, and were marveling. The disciples, these disciples, were shocked. They can tell you where they were when the reality of the resurrection seized them. A man they knew had been dead. A man they knew had been buried. That man now stood right in their midst. Why were they white with fear? Well, why wouldn't they be white with fear? What they saw was not possible. Why did they think they were seeing a ghost? Because dead men don't walk around with the living. Why couldn't they believe it? Because it was indeed unbelievable. If you would have asked one of those disciples later in life, much later when they were old, and said, What's the, what was the greatest day of your life? What was the greatest moment of your life? That disciple would not have said, oh, the first day I saw Jesus, the first day I met him. He would not have said, oh, the day that Jesus called me to be his disciple. No, he would have said, every one of these men would have said, the first time I saw Jesus after he came from the grave, that rocked my world. That changed everything. That changed my life. My world was shocked and forever altered. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then it forces one, it forces us, all of us, to a radical and different world and life view. Dr. Rollo May was one of the best-known psychologists of the 20th century. He was born in 1909. He died, he died in 1994. He was a man who was interested in religion. He attended seminary, briefly pastored a congregational church. 
But his obsession with psychology took him from the pulpit ministry. He studied under the existentialist theologian, Dr. Paul Tillich. Rollo May did not believe in the reality of the events of our salvation as they are in Scripture. To say it plainly, he did not believe in the reality of the resurrection. He didn't believe in the reality of the deity of Jesus. He was a prolific writer. In one of his works titled, My Search for Beauty, he spoke of visiting Mount Athos in Greece. One evening he stumbled, while he was there, he stumbled across a a Greek Orthodox congregation. And they were watching for the resurrection. They were keeping an Easter vigil as a church. It was Easter Eve, and there they were. They were waiting. They were waiting for the resurrection to be announced. Finally, the priest stood and said, Christ has risen. The congregation stood and responded loudly, He has risen indeed. When Rollo May stood with that congregation and said those words, he said, I had a thought that I had never previously had in my life. I asked myself, what if he had risen? What if it weren't true? What if it were true? And I quote him now. He said, then everything would be different. He could not look at life in the same way. No one could. Death would not be the end. There would be a completely different future. End quote. Now Rollo May didn't believe in the resurrection. But he did recognize what a shocking thing it would be if it had happened. I think it is ironic that many unbelievers like Rollo May grasp the shocking significance of the resurrection when many Christians who swear they do believe it miss the profound implications of it. We need to stand there today with those disciples in that room and be shocked. We need to discover the incredible nature of the resurrection. In a very real way, the most life-altering day of our lives ought to be when we realize the truth, the reality of Jesus' resurrection. A world-altering event. Is that what it has been to you? Is Is that what it is to us? Next, in this scene, I want us to see a physical resurrection. Look at verses 41 to 43. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus made sure they understood that they were not hallucinating in their grief. He was not an apparition. Listen to his words. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I. Touch me 
Touch me and see. He said, ghosts don't have flesh and bones. He showed them his hands and feet. He was showing them the scars from those awful nails. And then finally, after all of that, he said, give me something to eat. He was saying, apparitions don't eat real pieces of flesh. Of fish, excuse me. Apparitions eat imaginary fish. These fish were real. The disciples had been eating them. You could not touch a ghost. You couldn't touch an apparition. They could touch and feel Jesus. Why? Ask yourself this. Why did Jesus go to such lengths to show them the physical reality of his resurrection? And why did Luke lay this part of the resurrection record out in such detail? Remember, Jesus was there with those disciples for 40 days. There were many other episodes from which Luke could choose. Why this one? Why the detail? Because Jesus knew and Luke understood that the physical nature of the resurrection was essential to understanding the reality and impact of the resurrection. One of the explanations that has been made in every generation to make the resurrection more palatable was that the disciples were merely seeing just what they wanted to see. It was a self-manufactured vision. They wanted to see Jesus so badly they felt his presence. They were seeing visions that really weren't there. Notice that they were not expecting to see him. They were not. That, that was not inside of their frame of reference. In fact, when they did see him, they were petrified. These were no vague fears. There are quasi-Christian books that are heavily into devotionalizing and spiritualizing our deep, profound faith. The author of one of these books that I read spoke of when her husband died. She was devastated. She felt forsaken and alone. After the funeral, she went to her house and was so comforted because she said, I could feel my husband's presence. Now, she was writing this in a Christian book, and she thought she was, she thought that was a Christian thing. No! Her husband was home with the Lord. There was no reality of his presence in that house. She felt she had lived in that house with him for years. And so it was natural for those surroundings to influence how she felt. But to say she felt her husband's presence? No. No. Folks, the disciples, this is not a scene. Read it. It's not a scene where the disciples were simply feeling, do you feel his presence? No. That was not happening. That's not the message of this scripture. That's not the message of the resurrection. He was standing there with them, flesh and blood, and they could touch him. He ate and drank with them. Dr. Fleming Rutledge 
is an evangelical Episcopal rector. In her book, The Bible in the New York Times, she speaks of her friend who had lost her husband. He had died from heart disease. They were middle-aged, and the couple, they were a middle-aged couple, and his illness had been long and had given her time to prepare for his death. When he died, her immediate reaction seemed stoic, maybe even relief. However, when they came to take his body from the house, she began to cry, to sob. The home health nurse tried to comfort her by saying, it's only his body. His, his soul is going to be with the Lord. And the wife continued to cry uncontrollably and cried out, but it is his body that I want. Now that's a good thing. That's not a pagan statement. In fact, it was a Christian declaration. When Jesus died, his father knew the soul of Jesus. Jesus did not cease to exist. His soul was with God. That was not enough. In the resurrection, the father was saying, it's his body I want. The gospel doesn't just tell us that our souls go to be with the Lord. The gospel says to that lady, you shall see him, you will touch him, you will see him and touch him again. A world-altering event, a physical resurrection. And finally, I want you to see a physical redemption. Now, this is a kind of switch in gears, but it is inextricably entwined with this event that we saw in Luke. Turn with me to Romans 8, 18. And if you hadn't, if you hadn't turned to the other passage, turn to this one, please. Go get your Bibles and open it. Because I want to link this passage with the passage from Luke. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's talking about this coming resurrection. For the creation, now circle that, the creation waits with eager longings for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice he doesn't say that God's people, that the children of God is waiting. He said creation waits. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the resurrection itself that the creation itself will be set free. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see it. It's not only the creation that will be redeemed. It's the, I mean, not only the children of God will be redeemed, will be resurrected. The creation will. Read on. For we know that the whole creation has been grown together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. A physical redemption 
The physical resurrected body of Jesus is a prototype for our physical resurrected body. But there's more. His resurrection foreshadows the complete physical redemption of all creation. Just as God is not content just to have the soul, He will resurrect the body. Neither is He content just to redeem man alone out of the creation. He will redeem the entire creation. Folks, heaven is beyond our comprehension. We really cannot know the details of our resurrected body. We know because we've been told in Scripture that we shall be like Him in the same way we cannot know the details of heaven. But we can know that God is going to redeem this physical creation. The two will be related. In every age, in every age, the church has tried to spiritualize her faith, to over-spiritualize her faith. Right after the ascension, there were some thinkers, some people in the church who were, who were influenced by Gnosticism. The Gnostics taught that the physical was not only insignificant, but they taught that the physical was evil. The resurrection, the physical resurrection is a resounding no to the Gnostics. This passage in Romans is a resounding no to the Gnostics. It was as if Jesus knew what they and their heritage would say, and he laughed. He threw it in their faces. What did you think this physical body is? It's my body, the body of the Son of Man and Son of God. Jesus was saying, I will redeem the body, but he was saying more. I'll redeem the mountains. I'll redeem the trees. I'll redeem the, 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 the streams. I'll redeem the oceans. I'll redeem everything from painting to dancing. He will not let Satan, sin, and evil have the final say over his creation. Let me ask you a question. How then is the Christian supposed to approach the physical creation? As he's a Christian living in this world, how is he to approach it? God originally gave man a mandate in this physical world. He was to be the caretaker, the developer, the cultivator. You read on through Scripture. Jesus tells us, that we're to care in this creation for the widows and orphans, not, not just our own orphans, not just our own widows, but the widows and orphans of the world. God never removed that original mandate. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ sanctifies it. It puts a circle around it, underlines it. Paul devoted a whole chapter in Corinthians to the resurrection. It was a 15th chapter. Read it today. You, you, you can read it a thousand times and never get to the depths of it. But at the end of that chapter, in verse 58, he said this, 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that because of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. Every action in this physical world, this is what Paul was saying, every action in this physical world, whether you're reading a book to a five-year-old, cooking a meal for your family, building a new computer, working in a soup kitchen, in all of this, God is using his people to redeem this physical creation. Jesus did not say to his disciples, you sit tight, sin and evil, you just... You just have to wait. Sin and evil are so bad in this world, there's nothing you can do until I get back and set it straight. Is that what Jesus said? No. He set us out in the world, redeeming, redeeming his physical, to start that redemption, redeeming that physical creation. All right. Wake up. If, if you've gone to sleep, wake up. We're at the end. Remember at the beginning of the message, I asked where you were when President Kennedy was assassinated. As I told you, I was walking to my house in Bristol, Virginia, 515 Carter Street. My friend John Allen Howard was with me. I would have never remembered that detail unless the president had been killed. I would not have remembered where I was in Midtown Memphis on September the 11th, 2001, unless that great tragedy had happened in New York. You see, the big event made the small, forgettable event unforgettable. That is what the physical resurrection of Christ does to our physical, everyday lives. I want to say that again. That is what the physical resurrection of Christ does to our physical, everyday lives. Everything we do takes on a larger meaning. It is part of a great redemption that God has wrought and will, and will bring. There is a day coming when he will return and make that redemption complete. What a day that will be. That will be a new milestone. It will be a new marker in eternity. We'll be asking each other, where were you? What were you doing when Jesus returned? Amen.